before we begin the new chapter, any, any questions about what we covered last time on paradise? Does everybody know where paradise is and how to get there? Well, maybe it was. You weren't here. Oh. Well, can anybody give a resume then of what paradise is? What the earthly paradise was? It's uh, not material world as we know it. Then again, it's not in the noetic realm. It's somewhere in between. It's uh, a more rarefied physical world. Mm -hmm. And was it on the earth or in heaven? Neither. It was elevated. Oh, elevated above the earth. Yes, but actually in the beginning it was part of earth. Even it might have been in a higher place. And now? Through our hearts, more or less. It's actually a place, but we can't get there in a worldly geographic. Has anybody been there lately? In the last thousand years, say? Alright. That's right, the thief on the cross. He didn't come back to tell us. Anybody come back? St. Andrew, yes. There was a cook in a monastery. Well, right, the cook, St. Ephrosin. Yes, I several mentioned there. We'll come back and tell us, and when they talk, it's like St. Paul, they always say that they can't really say what they saw. They give some descriptions, like St. Andrew talks about plants, a beautiful garden, and above that, heaven itself. But there's so much outside of our normal experience that they can't talk about it very much. And that's the state we are to be in in the age to come. And on this earth it was, it's a, a special place which was created according to St. Ephraim together with the plants on the third day. And then God placed man in it on the sixth day because as though this is a place originally of the earth to show that man was meant to ascend from earth to heaven. But because of his fall, this heavenly aspect of earth, the original earth was not entirely material. It was like refined matter, which we don't understand. And this paradise was as if that original earth, a piece of that original earth, a special part of it went up and out of our sight. We're still able to get back to that. And the original earth fell into corruption after the fall of man, which we'll talk about today. <clears throat> yes? I don't well, hell wasn't really created, just like evil wasn't really created. Hell is simply the state, the place into which the fallen angels fell. In other words, in a sense, they made it themselves. It's not subject isn't mentioned, because that's that's the blood it says in the scripture, the place prepared for the devil and his angels. But that's left out. I, we aren't told in detail about the angels either, about their fall, just a, a glimpse here and there. It's obvious it happened before the serpent appears in Genesis. <clears throat> Any other questions? Is it difficult to understand these concepts of something which is not exactly material, not exactly spiritual? Does that mix us up? Because we're used to thinking of it dualistically, material and spiritual. We can't 
existence, right? And this is something, well, it's like the future age. There will be bodies, only bodies of such a kind that are called spiritual. Yes, the future age we will have bodies, but the bodies will be spiritual. That's exactly the same kind of realm, although paradise evidently was perhaps a little cruder than that, because it was still of the earth. And the future realm will be entirely heavenly, but at the same time, in it there will be bodies. And what was the first example of such a body? Does anybody know? Yes, the resurrected body of Christ, which is able to go through doors and, and closed doors and walls, was able to give the appearance of eating, although he did not need to eat, had wounds that could be touched, and yet he looked so differently that the disciples didn't recognize him when they saw him. And it's a very mysterious kind of state. And nonetheless, it's bound up with the body. <clears throat> Any other questions? Said, uh, Adam was created in the light, image and likeness of God, and Christ is uh, the realized likeness of God. What is the difference between uh, Adam's original state and uh, you say that Christ is the realized likeness of God in the... Well, since Christ was perfect man, he realized exactly what God intended for man to be. And Adam... Also, there's this whole thing about the first and second Adams. There's all the difference in that Adam was still mortal in the beginning. Actually, not mortal. Fathers say that he was in a state capable of immortality, capable of dying, but also capable of not dying, depending upon how he used his freedom. And Christ is already takes on our full human nature, even being subject to death, which Adam didn't have to be in the beginning. And unless he is already at the same time perfect God, an image of the resurrected humanity. Yes, we'll try. Now that we have microphones, we're trying to depend upon them too much, and they don't come out. All right. <clears throat> Any other questions before we start about the fall of Adam? Well, theoretically, you can think like that, whether Christ would have come anyway, that's a different question. That's God knew that himself, what he wanted to do before. And he knew the way things would be, and the way things were, was that Christ did come. That he would not have needed to come to redeem us if Adam had not sinned. Yes, of course, it's all very deep, very profound, and we get... We'll see at the end, I'll quote a few of the services which talk about these things. It's the theology of the church which is constantly given to us because that's what keeps us in remembrance of what we came from and where we are going. Now, we'll go on. <clears throat> to the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of paradise. St. Gregory, the theologian, speaks about this says that God gave Adam and Paradise a law as a material for his free will to act upon. This law was a commandment as to what plants he might partake of and which one he might not touch. This latter was the tree of knowledge. Not, however, because it was evil from the beginning when planted, nor was it forbidden because God grudged it to us, 
Let not the enemies of God wag their tongues in that direction or imitate the serpent. But it would have been good if partaken of at the proper time. For the tree was, according to my theory of contemplation, which it is only safe for those who have reached maturity of habit to enter upon, but which is not good for those who are still somewhat simple and greedy, just as neither is solid food good for those who have yet tender, are yet tender and have need of milk. And St. John Damason writes, quote, <clears throat> The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the power of discernment by multiple vision, and this is the complete knowing of one's own nature. Of itself it manifests the magnificence of the Creator, and it is good for them that are full-grown and have walked in the contemplation of God, for them that have no fear of changing, because in the course of time they have acquired a certain habit of such contemplation. It is not good, however, for such as are still young and are more greedy in their appetites, for because of the uncertainty of their perseverance in the true good, and because of their not yet being solidly established in their application to the only good, are naturally inclined to be drawn away and distracted by their solicitude for their own bodies. And St. John Chrysostom says, quote, The tree of life was in the midst of paradise as a reward, the tree of knowledge as an object of contest and struggle. Having kept the commandment regarding this tree, you will receive a reward. And behold the wondrous thing, everywhere in paradise every kind of tree blossoms, everywhere they are abundant in fruit. Only in the center are these two trees as an object of battle and exercise. End of quote. This is a profound subject. It's very much bound up with our human nature. In fact, I think we see something of this very temptation that Adam had in human life today. Although Adam was not fallen, so that's different from our present state. Nonetheless, the state in which Adam was is similar to the state of, say, a young person, 16, 17, 18 years old, who is brought up in goodness, and then comes the, the age when he must himself make the choice to be good or not. And it so happens that because we have freedom, that there must be a choice. And one must consciously will to do good. You can't simply be good because somebody tells you to be good. Sooner or later, your freedom must actively choose the good, or else it does not become part of you. <clears throat> That's true of everyone except, of course, a child who dies and quite young. And therefore, when one comes to this age, when one must become a man, it's then that one must make the same choice Adam made. Either to freely choose to do the good, or else to make the mistake and go into evil, that is, to enter into the life of sin. Because the, all these fathers say the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is something which is only for mature people. And because we have freedom, it cannot be that we will not have knowledge of evil. The only choice is whether we have knowledge of evil through the mistakes of others or through ourselves overcoming evil, because everyone, in order to become mature Christian, to be established in the way of doing good, has to know about evil. He has to know what it is that he's chosen not to do. And this knowledge can be without falling into great sins. If you are willing to take the examples of others, or if you are able to see, almost as if it's your own experience, you're able to see when somebody else makes a tremendous sin and you can see the result of that, then you can make that part of your experience without falling into sin. And evidently, that's what Adam could have done. If he had resisted this temptation, once he had resisted it, he would have seen that there was a temptation. 
That is, everything isn't perfect. There's something, somebody out to get him. And as the second temptation would have come, and he would have seen that this serpent or whoever else was used by the devil is out to make him fall. And then he would have begun to realize there is such a thing as evil, there is such a thing as an evil will which wants to make him lose this paradise. And through this, he could have attained that knowledge of evil and eventually tasted of that tree. The tree itself is only a tree. It's a symbolical tree. That it opens up to him because he, he, the tasting of it means disobeying the commandment. And therefore he learns about evil through disobeying the commandment. But if he didn't do that, the other choice is choose the way of sin and thereby discover in bitter experience what it means to be evil. And to repent of that and come back to goodness. <clears throat> and that's the path that Adam chose. And because of that, the, our whole nature is changed. And that's the path that everybody goes through except that each person is free, the same as Adam, although we're, of course, born in sins already, and small children are filled with all kinds of evil things, nonetheless, real evil does not come in until one is consciously choosing to be evil. And that's the, the choice of adulthood. So in a sense, everybody tastes of this tree, or else refrains from tasting of it and goes on the path of goodness. Unfortunately, the, the odds are far against surviving without falling into these evils. Although there's no reason, because we see now the evil all around us. We have instructors, we have holy fathers. It's quite possible for a person to be raised in Christianity, well, like St. Sergius of Radhanish, or other saints who were in monasteries from their childhood. They can be surrounded by good examples, they can see the results of evils in others, and they can choose not to do that themselves. But theoretically, it's quite possible. In practice, Bitter practice, usually it happens that we taste the tree by sinning ourselves. <clears throat> Any questions on that? Yeah, you, you said that uh, Adam realized this tr true nature. I mean, when, uh, the passage you read said that Adam realized his true nature. Did, at that point, did he realize, just realize his, his free will or re realize his freedom at that point? Well, this whole... Because once he disobeyed, all these things began to happen. He realized he was naked, and he saw that he was running away from God, and he began to make excuses. In other words, the whole path, which is the consequence of sin, was opened up to him. So he saw this depth in himself, that he's able to choose evil, even though he didn't really intend to. So he wasn't really conscious of his free will until that point? Well, the father said he was like in the state of a, although he was adult in body, but very simple. In fact, very exalted in mind, no, able to give names to the animals, but still very simple because untested. He was in a state of goodness without being tested by evil. And it, God's plan for Adam was for him to discover uh, his freedom by tasting of the tree of knowledge when he was ready. Then, then yeah, Already when he, he would have observed, the fathers don't talk about this particular aspect, that's my idea, but I think that when he observed that there were temptations, that would have been for him the opening of the awareness of evil. Before he even took the fruit. Yeah. And then, that in itself would have been like tasting the tree when he was mature for it, ready for it. Yeah, so it wasn't unconscious that day. Yeah. Unconscious. No, it wasn't. It was a deliberate then, because he knew before. Well, he knew one thing, that there was a commandment. Mm -hmm. But he was not tested in obeying the commandment yet. And in his simplicity, he fell. <clears throat> yes? What's the New Testament statement that... Um, the woman was deceived, but the man was not deceived. Well, because she was the first, she was the one who first was deceived. It was through her that it happened. And does that mean that he, when he partook of the apple, he knew what was 
Well, we'll go more into that as we go out and see the, the historical sequence of events. Nobody said there was an apple, by the way. <laughs> Some people think it was a fig, but it's a Western idea that it's an apple. It's no, we're not given particular information about that. It's just a tree with fruit. <clears throat> so this is, uh, so far, Adam has not fallen. In Genesis 2, 18 to 20, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. This does not mean, as the rationalist scholars say, that there's a total contradiction between this and the first chapter and that here all the creatures are created after Adam. That's not the, what it says at all. It simply, it describes the creation of man, that first there was man and then woman, and then incidentally it says that all these creatures had been created and they were not found as a companion for him. <clears throat> the animals are brought to Adam because their place, according to the Holy Father, is not in paradise, but in the earth outside of paradise. Paradise is meant for the dwelling of man alone an indication that man alone of all earthly creatures is meant for the heavenly kingdom to which he can ascend from paradise through keeping the commandments of God. Then John Damison writes that paradise, quote, was a divine place and a worthy habitation for God in his image. And in it no brute beast dwelt, but only man, the handiwork of God. Then John Chrysostom says, quote, Adam was given the whole earth, but his chosen dwelling was paradise. He could also go outside of paradise, but the earth outside of paradise was a sign for the habitation not of man, but of the irrational an animals, the quadrupeds, the wild beasts, the and crawling things. The royal and ruling dwelling for man was paradise. This is why God brought the animals to Adam, because they were separated from him. Slaves do not always stand before their Lord, but only when there is need for them. The animals were named and immediately sent away from paradise. Adam alone remained in paradise. End of quote. <clears throat> The Holy Fathers interpret the naming of the animals by Adam, quite literally, and see in it an indication of man's dominion over them, his undisturbed harmony with them, and a wisdom and intellect in the first man which far surpasses anything since known to man. St. Ephraim the Syrian writes about this, quote, The words he brought them unto Adam show the wisdom of Adam and the peace which existed between the animals and man before man transgressed the commandment. For they came together before man as before a shepherd filled with love. Without fear, according to kinds and types, they passed before him in flocks, neither fearing him nor trembling before him. It is not impossible for a man to discover a few names and keep them in his memory, but it surpasses the power of human nature and is difficult for him to discover in a single hour thousands of names and not to give the last of those names the names of the first. This is the work of God, and if it was done by man, it was given him by God. Remember, this is a sign of really divine intelligence in Adam. And St. John Chrysostom writes, quote, God does this in order to show us the great wisdom of Adam, and also so that in the giving of, in the giving of names might be seen a sign of dominion. Just think what wisdom was needed to give names to so many kinds of birds, reptiles, wild and domestic animals, and other irrational creatures, to give them all names and names belonging to them and corresponding to each kind. <clears throat> 
Just think of how the lions and leopards, vipers and scorpions and serpents and all the other, even more ferocious animals, came to Adam as to a lord, with all submission in order to receive names from him. And Adam did not fear a single one of his wild beasts. The names which Adam gave them remain until now. God confirmed them so that we might constantly remember the honor which man received from the Lord of all when he received the animals under his authority and might ascribe the reason for the removal of this honor to man himself who lost his authority through sin. End of quote from St. John Chrysostom. Because man possesses in himself something of the animal nature, as we have seen, and this animal nature became dominant in him because of the fall, Therefore, Adam's naming of the animals also indicates the original dominion of man's mind over the lower passionate nature. About this, St. Ambrose writes, quote, The beasts of the field and the birds of the air which were brought to Adam are our irrational senses, because beasts and animals represent the diverse passions of the body, whether of the more violent kind or even of the more temperate. God granted to you the power of being able to discern by the application of sober logic the species of each and every object in order that you may be induced to form a judgment on all of them. God called them all to your attention so that you might realize that your mind is superior to all of them. Next point, the creation of Eve. <clears throat> Genesis 2, 21-22. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Whereas this passage, those who are looking for allegories, most of all find it here. And this must mean something else. We can't believe that Eve, the first woman, came from the side of the first man. But the Holy Fathers say exactly that. <clears throat> In fact, this is like a touchstone. If you want to interpret this as an allegory, then you'll reinterpret the rest of the text also. And if you can accept this the way it's written, as the Holy Fathers do, then the rest of the text also you can accept the way it's written. Of course, if you want to believe in the evolutionary view, it makes no sense whatsoever to have Adam evolve from the beasts and then have Eve come from his side. It doesn't fit whatsoever. <clears throat> then Ambrose writes about this, quote, Woman was made out of the rib of Adam. She was not made of the same earth from which he was formed, in order that we might realize that the physical nature of both man and woman is identical and that there was one source for the propagation of the human race. For that reason, neither was man created together with a woman, nor were two men and two women created at the beginning, but first a man and after that a woman. God willed it that human nature be established as one. Thus, from the very inception of the human stock, he eliminated the possibility that many disparate nations should arise. Reflect on the fact that he did not take a part from Adam's soul, but a rib from his body. That is to say, not soul from a soul, but bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh will this woman be called. End of quote from St. Ambrose's uh, Treatise on Paradise. And St. Cyril of Jerusalem compares the formation of Eve with the virgin birth of Christ. He says, quote, Of whom in the beginning was Eve begotten? What mother conceived her, the motherless one? But the scripture says that she was born out of Adam's side. Is Eve then born out of a man's side without a mother, and is a child not to be born without a father of a virgin's womb? This debt of gratitude was due to men from womankind, for Eve was begotten of Adam and not conceived of a mother, but as it were brought forth of man alone. End of quote. 
course, all the church services are filled with this parallel between Eve and the Mother of God, between the first Adam and the second Adam, and the miraculous events in the beginning correspond to miraculous events when Christ came. St. <clears throat> John Chrysostom, while warning us that the word took must be understood in a way befitting God, who does not have any hands, clearly indicates his literal interpretation of this passage. Quote, Great are these words, they surpass every mind of man. Their greatness can be understood in no other way than by beholding them with the eyes of faith. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. This was not a simple ecstasy and not a usual sleep, but since the most wise and skilled creator of our nature wished to take from Adam one of his ribs, therefore, so that he might not feel the pain and then be hostily disposed to the one created from his rib, lest remembering the pain he hate the created, body, the created being, God plunged Adam into a deep sleep, and as it were, commanding him to be embraced by a kind of numbness, brought upon him such a sleep that he did not feel in the least what happened. Taking a certain small part from an already prepared creation, from this part he made a whole living being. What power does the highest artist, God, have to produce from this small part the composition of so many members, to arrange so many organs of sense and form a whole, perfect and complete being, which could converse and because of its oneness of nature, furnished the man great consolation. In another treatise, the same father, St. John Chrysostom, writes, quote, How did Adam not feel pain? How did he not suffer? One hair is torn out of a body, and, one ex and we experience pain. And even if one is immersed in a deep sleep, he wakes up from the pain. Moreover, such a large member is taken out, a rib is torn out, and the sleeping one does not wake up. God removed the rib, not violently, lest Adam wake up. He did not tear it out. The scripture, desiring to show the speed of the Creator's act, says he took. And St. Ephraim the Syrian writes, quote, The man who up to now had been awake and was enjoying the shining of the light and had not known what rest was is now stretched out naked on the earth and given over to sleep. Probably Adam saw in sleep the very thing that was happening to him. When, in the twinkling of an eye, the rib was taken out and likewise in an instant, flesh took its place, and the bared bone took on the full appearance and all the beauty of a woman. Then God brought and presented her to Adam. Unquote. All this took place on the very day of man's creation, the sixth day. To our limited minds, the creation of man and woman is just as inconceivable, as miraculous, as spectacular as all the other creations of God when they were made in the beginning. Then Genesis 2, 23 to 24, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Unquote. Here Adam names the first woman, even as he has just named the animals, indicating at the same time his oneness, her oneness in nature with him, owing to her literal origin from him, and the institution of marriage, since in prophecy he foresaw that the marriage union will be necessary because of the fall. Commenting on this passage, St. Ephraim writes, quote, This now, it says, that is, the one who has come to me after the animals is not such as they. They came from the earth, but she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Adam said this either in a prophetic way or, as noted above, according to his vision and sleep. And just as on this day all the animals received from Adam their names according to their kinds, so also the bone made into a woman he called not by her proper name Eve, 
but by the name of woman, the name belonging to the whole kind. And St. John Chrysostom says, quote, How did it come to his mind to say this? How did he know the future and the fact that the human race would multiply? How did it become known to him that there would be intercourse between man and wife? After all, this occurred after the fall, but before that they lived in paradise like angels, were not aroused by the flesh, were not inflamed by other passions either, were not weighed down by bodily needs, but being created entirely incorrupt and immortal, did not even need the covering of clothing. And so tell me, from whence did the idea come for him to say this? Is it not clear that since before the transgression he was a participant of the grace of prophecy, he saw all this with his spiritual eyes? The Adam is not only a great intellectual, a great seer of the reality of this world, so he can name the animals, he's also a prophet who sees the future. Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know that Adam and Eve were created, like the whole of the first creation, in the bloom of youth and beauty and already possessing the sexual distinction that would be needed in their fallen state. Yet there was no desire, no passionate thought between them. This, in the view of the Holy Fathers, is the clearest indication of their dispassionateness before the fall, and the fact that their minds were directed, first of all, to the glory of the heavenly world above. St. Ephraim the Syrian writes, quote, They were not ashamed because they were clothed with glory. St. John Chrysostom says, Before sin and disobedience occurred, they were clothed in the glory on high and were not ashamed. But after the violation of the commandment, they, can bo they came both there came both shame and the awareness of their nakedness. And St. John Damascene says, God wanted us to be dispassionate like that, for that is passionlessness to the highest degree. St. Seraphim of Sarov gives a concise description of the state of Adam in paradise before his fall. Quote, Adam was immune to the action of the elements to such a degree that water could not drown him, fire could not burn him, the earth could not swallow him in its abysses, and the air could not harm him by any kind of action whatever. Everything was subject to him as the beloved of God, as the King and Lord of creation, and everything looked up to him as the perfect crown of God's creatures. Adam was made so wise by this breath of life which was breathed into his face from the creative lips of God, the creator and ruler of all, that there never has been a man on earth wiser or more intelligent than he, and it is hardly likely that there will ever be. When the Lord commanded him to give names to all the creatures, he gave every creature a name which completely expressed all the qualities, powers, and properties given it by God at its creation. Owing to this very gift of the supernatural grace of God, which was infused into him by the breath of life, Adam could see and understand the Lord walking in paradise, and comprehend his words and the conversation of the holy angels, and the language of all beasts, birds, and reptiles, and all that is now hidden from us fallen and sinful creatures, but was so clear to Adam before his fall. To Eve also the Lord God gave the same wisdom, strength, and unlimited power, and all the other good and holy qualities. End of quote from St. Seraph. I already mentioned before that to some extent in the lives of saints we can see a return to this character of paradise as when martyrs are tortured and killed many times and come back as fresh as ever. But this is only a hint, only a glimpse of that state which Adam was in permanently. <clears throat> St. Gregory of Nyssa speaks comparing this early state to the angelic state that is to come in the future. Quote, The resurrection promises us nothing else than the restoration of the fallen to their ancient state. For the grace we look for is a certain return to the first life, bringing back again to paradise him who was cast out from it. If then the life of those restored is closely related to that of the angels, 
it is clear that the life before the transgression was a kind of angelic life, and hence also our return to the ancient condition of life as compared to the angels. End of quote. <clears throat> the image of Adam before the fall is a basic one in Orthodox ascetic literature because the purpose of struggling is to gain back that state. Actually, to gain back a state which is higher than that, the state which Adam would have attained if he had not fallen. And therefore, this image of Adam is central one in many ascetic writings. For example, Abba Dorotheus, in the very first pages of his book, The Spiritual Instructions, gives this image to inspire uh, strugglers. Quote, In the beginning, when God created man, he placed him in paradise and adorned him with every virtue, giving him the commandment not to taste of the tree which was in the midst of paradise. And thus he remains there in the enjoyment of paradise, in prayer, in a vision, in every glory and honor, having sound senses and being in the same natural condition in which he was created. For God created man according to his own image, that is, immortal, master of himself, and adorned with every virtue. But when he transgressed the commandment, eating the fruit of the tree which, of which God had commanded him not to taste, then he was banished from paradise, fell away from the natural condition, and fell into a condition against nature. And then he remained in sin, in love of glory, in love for the enjoyments of this age, and of other passions, and he was mastered by them, for he became their slaves through the transgression. End of quote of St. Alvador says. The, the awareness that Adam's state in paradise was the natural human condition, and the one to which we may hope to return by God's grace is one of the greatest inspirations to ascetic struggle. This awareness is of most practical benefit to Orthodox Christians to hope to inherit God's kingdom. With the fall of man, paradise ceased to be a reality of this earth and was placed out of our reach. But through the grace of God, made available to Christians to the second Adam Christ, who may still hope to attain it. Now about the fall. Any questions on these, these parts of our state of Adam? Yes? No, he created the whole human nature in one man, the first man, Adam, and out of his flesh took the first woman. And from them comes the whole rest of mankind. It's a very interesting, we have no time this year, but I mean, next year we could have a commentary on the next seven or eight chapters of Genesis, which talk about early mankind and how they came from these original two. Yes? When God created Adam, uh, Eve out of the rib of Adam, he took him after the flesh and bone. Did he take, like, those qualities that are particular to womankind from Adam? Or did he endow her with other, uh, when he created endow with other, like, complementary qualities? Well, <laughs> we aren't told. He gave her whatever quality he needed to give her, starting from the, since the rib of Adam does not produce a woman, and the rib of a man does not produce a woman, therefore it's a miracle. Therefore he simply gave from this one part. He took the one part simply to show that the, the origin of mankind is a single one. Well, you don't need to because the whole of mankind is already present in the original man, the soul, the image of God. Everyone produced after that from this one man has the same nature. 
the same image. The body and soul weren't meant to be separate the first day. No, of course not. If Adam, was not, if Adam had not died, we wouldn't need to talk about body and soul, because the body would itself become refined and become soul-like. In the end, we would have the, the state of the spiritual body. In whatever way he knows, he gave her the same thing he gave Adam, yes. We aren't told details like that. The whole thing is a miracle of God. <clears throat> yes, Christ is the second Adam. And he's also... Because our whole salvation, we were meant to be offspring of Adam in some way. By whatever it means, it would have been reproduction. And all men come from the one man. And therefore, Adam is like humanity. And Adam ruined the whole plan. Although God was smarter because he already figured out how to bring it about without Adam. And therefore, this, the one who, through whom this nature is restored, and we have the opportunity once more to be in paradise, is this called Adam also, the second Adam. Do you think all things like That's right. Death came from one man and life comes from one man. Because Adam tasted the tree, our nature was changed. And therefore, when we speak and the Holy Father speak about the nature of man, sometimes they refer to this fallen nature we have. Our nature is so evil. But sometimes, like Abedrathes, to give an image of what we're supposed to get back to, he speaks about the original nature of mankind. The Roman Catholic idea, by the way, is different. They say that in the beginning, man was natural and that he had extra grace which made him supernatural. And then when he fell, he lost the grace and went back to the state he was made in. That's a whole different conception, and that makes the whole, that fits in sort of evolution, can fit that in sort of somehow, because it sounds as though the whole creation was made natural to begin with, and God didn't create everything incorrupt. Adam was not made immortal. He sort of became immortal when he added grace to him. But in the orthodox view, man was created immortal, his whole nature was different. And when he fell, the nature became twisted, it was changed the nature we know today. And therefore, we can still get back to that state, by, right? Of course, only if there's going to be grace of God through Christ himself coming to grace himself. But the state that we're um, striving for is, is uh, not the state Adam was in, but the state that Adam was meant to be in. Right. But that original state is like an image of it because it was close to that state already. No, no, and these animals came before him, he didn't know about them. He instantly gave whatever God placed in his mind. Which is, yeah, it's a very high kind of thing, which we don't... It's like a, when you, we have an image of that when a clairvoyant elder looks at somebody for the first time, tells his name, tells his sin, and tells him what to do to save his soul. It's exactly the same kind of thing. It comes, it's, it's his doing, but only through God's grace. It's his mind is, is giving this startling information, but it's only because he's in direct contact with God that he can do it. Yes? Yes. So, like, that's just too much a part of our thinking now. Right. So what, what did, like, Adam think? What, what would they say what his state of mind was? Well, it's that state called sobriety. Nipsis. <clears throat> In other words, he looked at things and saw them the way they were. And there was no double thought. And in fact, not only he looked at them and saw the way they were, he named them. 
as the creatures as they came before him, he named them. But like I've heard people say, like imagination is even like um, it's like God is creative, like that's our creative power, and so that's a good thing, you know, like that's how we make things and we think of beautiful things. And... It depends on how you mean the word imagination. There's several aspects of it. The aspect in which that's a creative faculty, that is that is something which is part so of our original nature, right? Right. But in our fallen state, this creative talent becomes mixed up with this idea of double thinking, looking at things and imagining something else. So it has, it, the word imagination does have two meanings, but in our fallen state, it's always bound up with, with uh, double thinking. Yes. Well, St. John Chrysostom says the same names we have today. Of course, if you trace back these names, you'll find that in different languages, since the Tower of Babel, that it's all been mixed up. But you can trace this interest. You can trace back even ancient Tibetan, Chinese, Sanskrit, and uh, Western languages. Some names go back to the same syllable, like Ma, Mama, and a few other terms like that. You can see that there's, it must have been something like that. But we become so, and you can see by the history of any language, like Latin, from Latin of the 4th century to Italian, Spanish, and French and all the other languages of the 20th century that just in 16th centuries have changed so much. Although you know in that case you can trace back for 2,000, 3,000 years and get back to the roots from which they diverge. To go back to the beginning is simply impossible. They try to do it in various universities, but it's futile. <clears throat> Very inspiring, isn't it? And you read, well, we'll have to get through this. <clears throat> the fall, we haven't come to the fall yet. We'll go very briefly over the whole question of how he fell. This is described in the third chapter of Genesis. And once more, by this time it's obvious, when you read this account, how are the fathers going to understand the fall of Adam? Is it an allegory? It's a pretty story which just simply gives an account of the human situation has nothing to do with history, or is it historical account? It certainly looks as though they're going to interpret it historically, even though it looks very strange to us, this serpent and so forth. Let's see what they have to say about this. Genesis 3, 1 begins, Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. Again, this is very easy for our rationalistic modern mind to put away and say that must be an image, a symbol, an allegory. The Holy Fathers don't say that. St. John Chrysostom says, quote, Do not regard the present serpent. Do not regard how we flee it and feel repulsion towards it. It was not such in the beginning. The serpent was the friend of man and the closest of those who served him. And who made it an enemy? The sentence of God. Cursed are you above all cattle and above all wild animals. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Genesis 3.14 It was this enmity that destroyed the friendship. I mean not a rational friendship, but one of which an irrational creature is capable. Similar to the way that now the dog manifests friendship, not by word but by natural movements, just so did the serpent serve man. As a creature who enjoyed great closeness to man, the serpent seemed to the devil to be a convenient tool for deception. Thus the devil spoke through the serpent, deceiving Adam. I beg you, I beg your love to hear my words, not see, not carelessly. The question is not an easy one. Many ask, how did the serpent speak, with a human voice or with a serpent's hissing? 
And how did Eve understand? Before the transgression, Adam was filled with wisdom, understanding, and the gift of prophecy. The devil noticed both the wisdom of the serpent and Adam's opinion of it, because the latter considered the serpent wise. He was the one who gave it the name. And so he spoke through it so that Adam might think that the serpent, being wise, was able to mimic the human voice also. The quote from St. John Chrysostom. Of course, we must understand that before this could happen, before the devil could use the serpent, the warfare in heaven described in the apocalypse has already occurred. The angels were cast out. The devil is envious of man and ready to take away, to bring him down to the same state in which he is. Because this fall occurred to the envy of the devil. Then Ambrose writes, he quotes the scripture, Wisdom 2.24, By the envy of the devil, death came into the world. The cause of envy was the happiness of man placed in paradise, because the devil could not brook the favors received by man. His envy was aroused because man, though formed in slime, was chosen to be an inhabitant of paradise. The devil began to reflect that man was an inferior creature that had hopes of an eternal life, whereas he, a creature of superior nature, had fallen, had become part of this mundane existence. End of quote from the treatise on paradise. Then Genesis 3, 1 to 6. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The childlikeness of this dialogue, and the ease with which our first parents fell into the transgression of the only commandment which had been given them, indicate the untested nature of their virtue. Everything had been given them by God's grace, but they were not yet skilled in tilling and keeping their inward state. The temptation offered by the devil contains the same elements we fallen men know in our own fight against sin. He offers, first of all, not an obvious evil, but something which seems good and true. Men were indeed created to be gods and sons of the Most High, it says in the Psalms, and were aware that from paradise they were to ascend to a higher condition. The devil, therefore, as it were, thought to himself, as St. Ambrose expresses it, quote, this, therefore, is my first approach, namely to deceive him while he is desirous of improving his condition. In this way, an attempt will be made to arouse his ambition. Unquote. In causing our first ancestors to look at the good thing of becoming like gods, the devil hoped to cease to cause them to forget the small commandment, which is the way God ordained them to achieve this goal. Again, the devil attacked not through the man, but through the woman, not because the woman was weaker or more passionate, because both Adam and Eve still preserved the dispassionateness of their original nature. But for the simple reason, as St. Ambrose writes, that Adam alone had heard the command from God, whereas Eve knew it only indirectly, and thereby might be considered more likely to disobey it. St. Ambrose writes about this, quote, The devil aimed to circumvent Adam by means of the woman. He did not accost the man who had in his presence received the heavenly command. He accosted her who had learned of it from her husband, and who had not received from God the command which was to be observed. There is no statement that God spoke to the woman. We know that he spoke to Adam. Hence, we must conclude that the command was communicated through Adam to the woman. Unquote. 
The success of the devil's temptation finally was due to his knowledge or guess as to what is in the heart of man himself. It was not the devil who caused Adam's fall, but Adam's own desire. St. Ephraim writes about this, quote, The tempting word would not have led him to sin, those who were tempted, if the tempter had not been guided by their own desire. Even if the tempter had not come, the tree itself by its beauty would have led their desire into battle. <clears throat> Although the first ancestors sought an excuse for themselves in the counsel of the serpent, they were harmed more by their own desire than by the counsel of the serpent. End of quote. As a result of the temptation, as St. John Chrysostom teaches, quote, The devil led the woman into captivity, drew away her mind, and caused her to think of herself above her worth, so that being drawn away by empty hopes, she might lose even what had been given her. End of quote. <clears throat> Genesis 3, 7 says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This passage, St. John Chrysostom says, Quote, it was not the eating of the tree that opened their eyes. They had seen even before eating. But since this eating served as an expression of disobedience and violation of the commandment given by God, and for this reason they were then deprived of the glory that clothed them, having become unworthy of such great honor, the scripture says they ate and their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Being deprived of grace from on high for the transgression of the commandment, they saw also their physical nakedness, so that from the shame that took hold of them they might understand into what an abyss they had been cast by their transgression of the Master's commandment. When you hear their eyes were opened, understand this to mean that God gave them to feel their nakedness and the loss of the glory which they had enjoyed before the eating. Do you see that the word opened refers not to the bodily eyes, but to mental vision? End of quote. With the opening of their eyes through the transgression, Adam and Eve have already lost the life of paradise, even though they have not yet been banished from it. From now on, their eyes will be opened to the lower things of this earth, and they will see only with difficulty the higher things of God. They are no longer dispassionate, but have begun the passionate earthly life which we still know today. Genesis 3.8 says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Unquote. And John Chrysostom interprets this passage as follows. What do you say? God walks? Are you going to ascribe feet to him and not understand by this anything higher? No, God does not walk. In very fact, how can he who is everywhere and fills all things, whose throne is heaven and the earth his footstool, how can he walk in paradise? What sensible man would say this? Then what does it mean? They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He wished to arouse in them such a feeling of God's closeness that it would make them uneasy, which indeed happened. They felt this and tried to hide themselves from God who was approaching them. And St. Ambrose writes, quote, In my opinion, God may be said to walk wherever throughout Scripture the presence of God is implied. In the dialogue that follows, we see that God comes to Adam not to condemn him or to banish him from paradise, but to bring him to his senses. St. Chrysostom writes, quote, God did not delay in the least, but as soon as he saw what had happened and the seriousness of the wound, he immediately hastened with a treatment, so that the wound would not become inflamed and become incurable. Pay heed to the Lord's love of mankind and his extreme lack of ill will. He could, without even vouchsafing a reply to the one who had performed such a sin, have immediately subjected him to the punishment which he had already decreed beforehand for the transgression. But God is long-suffering, delays, asks, and listens for the answer, and again asks, as if evoking the guilty one to justify himself, 
in order that when the matter had been revealed, he might show him his love of mankind, even after such a transgression. Genesis 3.9 says, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Of this St. Ambrose says, What then does he mean by Adam, where art thou? Does he not mean in what circumstances are you, not in what place? It is therefore not a question, but a reproof. From what condition of goodness, beatitude, and grace, he means to say, Have you fallen into this state of misery? You have forsaken eternal life. You have entombed yourself in the ways of sin and death. Then Genesis 3, 10 to 13. And God said, I, and Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest me to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. In this dialogue, the fathers see God's call for man to repent. <clears throat> St. John Chrysostom writes, quote, God asked about this not because he did not know. He knew and knew perfectly. But in order to show his love of mankind, he condescends to their weakness and calls them to confess their sin. But when man responds not in repentance, but with self-justification, thereby bringing punishment upon himself, St. Ephraim comments on this passage, quote, Instead of acknowledging what he had done himself, which acknowledgment would have been profitable for him, Adam retells what happened to him, something that was profitless for him. Adam does not confess his guilt, but accuses the woman. And when Adam does not wish to confess his guilt, God addresses a question to Eve and says, What is this that thou hast done? And Eve, instead of entreating with tears and taking the guilt upon herself, as if she does not desire to obtain forgiveness for herself and her husband, does not mention the promise given her by the serpent and how he persuaded her. When both had been questioned and it was revealed that they have neither repentance nor any true justification, then God turns to the serpent, not with a question, but with a definite punishment. For where there was room for repentance, there was questioning. But one who is a stranger to repentance is simply given the judge's sentence. If our first ancestors had desired and had repented even after the transgression of the commandment, then even though they would not have been restored, they would have not have restored to themselves what they had before the transgression of the commandment, at least they would have been delivered from the curses that were attained, that were uttered to the earth and to themselves. Though that's not quite as simple as it seemed, they just didn't sin and were condemned. They were given a chance to repent. In fact, St. Abadorotheus, in the first chapter of his book, uses this as an example of our self-justification. Quote, After the fall, God gave Adam the opportunity to repent and be pardoned, but his neck remained unbending. For God came and said to him, Adam, where art thou? That is, from what glory and to what shame have you come? And then when he asked him why he sinned, why he transgressed, he prepared him especially so that he might say, Forgive me. But there was no humility. Where was the word forgive? There was no repentance but the complete opposite. For he contradicted and retorted, The woman whom thou gavest me deceived, deceived me. He did not say, My wife deceived me, but the woman whom thou gavest me, as if to say, This misfortune which you have brought on my head. For thus it always is, brothers. When a man does not wish to reproach himself, he does not hesitate to accuse God himself. Then God came to the woman and said to her, And why did you not keep the commandment? As it were, he especially hinted to her, At least you say, Forgive me so your soul might be humbled and you might be pardoned. But again, he did not hear the word forgive. For she also replied, The serpent beguiled me. 
as if to say, the serpent sinned, and what is that to me? What are you doing, wretched ones? Repent, acknowledge your sin, have pity on your nakedness. But neither of them wished to accuse himself, neither had the least humility. And so you see how clearly, now clearly to what state, to what our state has come, into what great misfortunes we have been led by the fact that we justify ourselves, that we hold to our own will and follow ourselves. Then Genesis 4, 3, 14 to 15. And the Lord God said to the servant, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The fathers, in the, with the realism of their understanding of Genesis, interpret this punishment as applying, first of all, to the literal animal who was the instrument of man's fall, but then also to the devil who used this creature. And John Chrysostom writes, quote, Perhaps someone will say, If the counsel was given by the devil using the serpent as an instrument, why is this animal subjected to such a punishment? Thus also was a, this also was a work of God's unutterable love of mankind. As a loving father in punishing the murder of his son breaks also the knife and sword by which he performed the murder and breaks them into small pieces, in similar fashion, the all-good God, when this animal, like a kind of sword, served as an instrument of the devil's malice, subjects it to a constant punishment, so that from this physical and visible manifestation we might conclude the dishonor in which it finds itself. And if the one who served as the instrument was subjected to such anger, what punishment must the other be undergoing? The unquenchable fire awaits him. One can speculate, if you like, what the serpent looked like before he fell. Thus she says, Thou shalt crawl upon thy belly. You might think he had feet. St. John Chrysostom says, No, he did not have feet. Most likely he was upright, like when he's ready to strike. And he simply traveled by moving the coil below, standing upright. And after the curse, he has to go like this on his belly. <clears throat> the heel. Now I'll give an explanation right now to that. So it's a mystical meaning. So the enmity of the fallen man, and it's interesting, our nature now, it, when Adam fell, our nature became different. That is, before that he could be naked and not notice it. Afterwards, it's impossible. Before that, he had friendship for the serpent like we have for dogs or cats or some domestic animal. And afterwards, we have this instinctive reaction against snakes. Everybody here probably has experienced and it shows there's a little, just a little change somehow, but our whole nature is different. But this enmity, which is between man and serpent, is most of all, of course, between man and the devil. In this passage, a 19th century Orthodox commentary in this passage, says the following. Quote, The first woman in the world was the first to fall into the devil's net, and easily gave herself into his power. But by her repentance, she will shake all his power, shake off his power over her. Likewise, in many other women also, especially in the person of the most blessed woman, the Virgin Mary, he will meet a powerful resistance to his wiles. By the seed of the woman, which is hostile to the seed of the devil, one must understand in particular one person from among the posterity of the woman, namely the one who from eternity was predestined for the salvation of men and was born in time of a woman without a man's seed. He subsequently appeared in the world to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. That is, the kingdom of the devil, filled with his servants, with his seed. 
The striking of the spiritual serpent in the head by the seed of the woman signifies that Christ will completely defeat the devil and take away from him all power to harm men. Until the second coming, the devil will have the opportunity to harm men, including Christ himself. But his wounds will be easily healed, like wounds in the heel, which are not dangerous because in the heel, which is covered with hard skin, there is little blood. A wound in the heel was given by the powerless malice of the devil to Christ himself, against whom he aroused the unbelieving Jews who crucified him. But this wound served only for the greater shame of the devil and the healing of mankind. With a wound in the heel means a small amount which the devil is able to harm us. Then the last two curses, one to Eve, first of all. Genesis 3.16 To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy pains and thy groanings. In pain thou shalt bring forth children, and thy submission shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over you. Even while cursing the serpent, God is awaiting the repentance of Adam and Eve. And Ephraim writes about this, quote, God began with the despised serpent, so that while the anger of righteous judgment was directed against it alone, Adam and Eve might become terrified and repent, and thereby the opportunity would have been given to God's goodness to deliver them from their curses of righteous judgment. But when the serpent was been, had been cursed, and Adam and Eve did not hasten to entreaties, God uttered the punishment to them. He addresses Eve first, because by her hand sin was given to Adam. St. John Chrysostom writes of Eve's punishment, quote, Behold the Lord's goodness, and what meekness he shows after such a transgression. He says, I wish that you would lead a life without sorrow and pain, free of every grief and bitterness, and filled with every satisfaction, that being clothed in a body you might not feel anything bodily. But since you did not make fitting use of such happiness, but the abundance of good things brought you to such great ingratitude, therefore so that you might not be given over to yet greater self-will, I am laying upon you a bridle, and I condemn you to sorrow and groaning. <clears throat> I shall arrange that your grown that your giving birth to children, a source of great consolation, will begin in sorrow, so that in daily grief and sorrow in giving birth you might have a constant reminder of how great was this sin and disobedience. At first I created you equal in honor to your husband, and wished that being of one dignity with him, you might have communion in everything with him. And I entrust to you as to your husband authority over all creatures. But since you did not make fitting use of the equality and honor, for this I am subjecting you to your husband. I subject you to him and proclaim him your Lord, so that you might acknowledge his authority. Since you are unable to lead, therefore learn to be a good subject. End of quote St. John Chrysostom, which is the answer to the problem of women's liberation. Become saints and your problems are ended. Finally, Genesis three seventeen to 19. <clears throat> and unto Adam he said, Because thou hast... Hearken unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Image of the trials and tribulations of simply living in this fallen world given to Adam. And he now becomes, therefore, mortal. That is like the creatures. There's a whole teaching which we can't go into. The uh, Romans 8, 21, about the whole creation, which is groaning, because subjected to vanity. Vanity means corruption. Because of one man. 
That is, the whole of the creation now became subject to death because of man. And it's groaning, awaiting for man to be delivered before it itself can be restored to that original state of immortality. And the creatures will be wandering around the forest like they are not only in a state of incorruption and immortality, like they were in the days of Adam. Fathers also mention, however, that death, in this case, was not just a punishment, it was also a good. Because once man fell, if he would still be immortal, then there's no way out. But if you imagine being in a state of unable to redeem yourself, unable to get to paradise, and then living and living and living and living and living, there's no hope to get out of it. Death sort of puts an end to sin. The fact that you're afraid of death already wakes you up to begin to struggle. Even if you forget about paradise, you'll be afraid of death and begin to struggle to overcome that. Yes? From our point of view, who are so far away, it's all the same. If you get into one, you should give thanks to God. <laughs> but apparently there will be distinctions because there are many mansions, different places, that is, some saints attain to great freedom, great familiarity with God, and others barely get in. And the meek will inherit the earth. St. Simeon in his theologian says that means this very earth here, the meek will inherit. So apparently some will be on earth with the ability to go up higher. Others will be on higher levels. The whole thing is not revealed to us. It is given a glimpse. If we enter into that state, then we can be seeing exactly what happens. <clears throat> well, it's not mentioned precisely whether a fossil will be there, but... This whole creation, what was meant in the beginning, will be again. Whether personally it will be the same beast, since they have a whole different personality, we aren't told. But the same creatures will be there, and that very serpent apparently only now will be friendly with him. And even the scorpions and everything else, if they can't harm you, there's no terror in all these animals. Um, the righteous people that have died now... <laughs> Like, say, okay, the, the new martyrs, or the canonized, are they in paradise? Are they in heaven? Or are they in a place separate? Or, like, what do the fathers teach them? Well, we can, all we have to go on is the visions of various people. And like, in the sense, Salvius died and went to heaven. Usually, when it's paradise, specifically paradise, you see green growing things. But he went to some other place where there was no green growing things, but just multitudes of people in white saints. Martyrs. I was there in heaven. St. Andrew also, when he went to paradise, I think he didn't see people there, did he? So he saw in heaven people, I think. But we aren't told in detail about things like that. Oh, well, the right, our canonization simply acknowledges where they are, that's all. No. Yeah, they're already. That sort of adds their glory among us on earth. But to them, God already knows what state they're in. <clears throat> yes. A uh, couple of questions about the enmity between Adam and the serpent. Um, you said that the devil had was envious of Adam when he was uh, before he fell because of the favor that was bestowed upon him, and you said he called him inferior because was it he had a, that Adam had a hope of. Why was it that he said? Well, the devil is superior because he's an intellectual being. He's in subject to this body. The body is a lower element. Therefore, he's superior, but he's going to get that which the devil lost. It is oh. paradise in heaven. Oh, okay. It's very natural. Even according to human psychology, you can figure out the devil. And that's why he's, to this day, he's just angry. If you had a mortal life, then you knew that you're damned to hell. 
And there's this other being who's lower than yours, not worth even spitting on. And he's going to get that which you lost. Of course, you're going to be terribly envious because there's no way, you're no repentance for you. You're going to be trying every possible way to get him in that same state you are, at least that much. Well, that, my second question was, um, with the, the issue of his um, biting at the heel, is that how he, uh, like you say, trying to get us back into the state where he is completely helpless? Does he try to say, could you stick, would it be, Oh, yes, you can give many interpretations of that particular thing, yes, but he doesn't have power to do much. If he were upright, say, he was level of our waist, then he would be a dangerous foe. He could be biting you every place. Well, then, <clears throat> he is able to snatch us from any given state only if we if we have the grace of God and are not cooperating with it he can't it's only when we ourselves our will is drawn away by him and actually we ourselves allow ourselves to be just like Adam he could have sinned without Satan because if he saw the, the pleasant aspect of it and there was already temptation there could have been temptation for him to want it for himself without outside the commandment of God Well, there's something very symptomatic there. That they're involved with that kind of a creature in the first place. It's, that is, there it shows that the demons work somewhere there. It's just in general, you can say that much about it. Oh, uh, uh, um, that's a profound question. That's right, because everything that is in the world, God, there's, we do not believe in the dualism, that there's a God and there's a de the devil and they fight each other, like the Manichaeans believe. We believe that actually God is in charge of everything. And even when things go against him, he uses that for the, either his greater glory or to bring, bring men to salvation. So everything in the world happens either because God wills it that way or because he allows it that way out of, because of the presence of freedom in order to bring about a greater good. So, but Satan has an independent personality. But in the long run, he loses out because everything, even when he causes some kind of sin or some kind of terrible thing, like Russian Revolution, it's a terrible thing. Out of that come new martyrs, a tremendous inspiration for men. And you can even imagine what would have happened to Russia without the revolution. The way it was going. Probably would have been worse than Greece today. It would have been a frightful place of worldliness, only pretending to be orthodox. And instead, it was chastised. And therefore, it's actually a good thing came out of it, despite the fact that the devil meant evil. And that's, that's, he means he is independent, he can do evil, but God brings always out of it good to those whose wills want good. He can't do anything. No, no. No, and the fact when we say that he's, he's bound up, the fact that the, the devil is bound for a thousand years, the whole time between the first and second coming of Christ, that doesn't mean he can't do anything. It means he can do only what God allows. And when a person is walking in the grace of Christ, 
then only if he himself falls away from that can the devil do anything to him at all. Because when we get temptations, they're like this exactly that, that like the serpent bruising the heel. It's some kind of small thing, and we should shake them off. And only if we allow ourselves to be overcome by them do we fall into despondency and anger and all kinds of sins. So his power is very limited. But it was, but it was, it was uh, it wasn't that way. Yeah. Well, before coming to Christ, it was much more because it, everyone was bowing down to idols, which were demonic things. And now, but in the whole scheme of things, that, that, that whole thing was just in the plan. Uh, well, yes, but God, it's a very mystical thing because it's in the plan, and yet each person freely does what he wants in that plan. And God brings good order, goodness out of the whole thing, no matter how many demons or men want to do evil. Well, that's almost the end. Uh, the last few verses. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life. He, called, he gives her a particular name now in addition to the name woman. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make them coats of skins and clothed them. St. Gregory the theologian, St. Gregory of Nyssa says these coats of skins mean, well that means literally they also put them on, but figuratively, symbolically it means that they became clothed in a different kind of flesh. That is, their nature was changed. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. It is not as, he shall become as one of us, that is the Holy Trinity. And he cast him out so he will not eat of this tree of, of uh, life, which we see also in the Apocalypse, the tree of life in the center of paradise that which will make him immortal without being good. God does not want that. Therefore he casts him out. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Which, as we said in the first talks, St. Macarius of Egypt says, is a mystical thing which happens to every soul because paradise is closed to us, and it also is exactly the way it says. There is a cherubim with a flaming sword. This is the first three chapters, which is the basic theology of the church, about the origin of man and therefore his goal. And the services are filled with this element, especially services to the cross. And I'll read in closing just a few of these verses. For example, today we have a feast of the cross. There aren't as many of these verses today. On the September 14th, the Feast of the Exaltation, there's a number of very good verses which show how the church views the original what happened in paradise and what happened when Christ came. It compares the tree, the wood of the tree of which Adam tasted and the tree which was the cross. Example of the verses, the glory of now on the Great Vespers. says, Come, all ye peoples, let us venerate the blessed wood through which the eternal justice has been brought to pass. For he who by a tree deceived our forefather Adam is by the cross himself deceived. And he who by tyranny gained possession of the creature endowed by God with royal dignity is overthrown in headlong fall. By the blood of God the poison of the serpent is washed away, and the curse of a just condemnation is loosed by the unjust punishment inflicted on the just. For it was fitting that wood should be healed by wood, and that through the passion of one who knew not passion should be remitted all the sufferings of him who was condemned because of wood. Right profound thing if you read these knowing the theology of 
paradise and the future age. It's very moving. <clears throat> then in the matins, that service, this uh, sedalian sessional hymn, in paradise of old, the wood stripped me bare, that is, the tree. For by giving its fruit to eat, the enemy brought in death. But now the wood of the cross that clothes men with the garment of life has been set up in the midst of the earth, and the whole world is filled with boundless joy. Or the canticle. See, the little creature comes. It's like in paradise. O thrice blessed tree on which Christ the King and Lord was stretched, through thee the beguiler fell who tempted mankind with the tree. He was caught in the trap set by God, who was crucified upon thee in the flesh, granting peace unto our souls. In the ninth song, Irmos, through the death that came to man through eating of the tree is made of no effect through the cross. For the curse of our mother Eve that fell on all mankind is destroyed by the fruit of the pure mother of God, whom all the powers of heaven magnify. Well, that is the, briefly the theology of the beginning of all things, paradise, original Adam, his fall and the state which we have to try to get back to by the second Adam, who is Christ. Any other questions? This afternoon, I think we're supposed to have tests on this question, perhaps a little more review. You can get your notes together. And it's a very profound subject, but a study of it opens up the services of the church, which become extremely realistic. And a very important point, if you interpret all these events in the early history of mankind as simply an allegory, some kind of a pretty story which says something else entirely. For example, a lot of Roman Catholic theologians say that the idea of paradise does not fit in with the findings of modern anthropology. Therefore, we have to reinterpret everything and come to the conclusion that man evolved from lower animals and original sin must mean that as soon as man became sufficiently developed to become aware of himself and therefore become man, this awareness was like a fall. Therefore he fell. And that's the whole meaning of paradise, they say. Because you cannot fit paradise into a scheme where man is originally this divine nature that Adam had. And it's very, I think, very important for us to see this, these two entirely opposed conceptions. One, that man is created directly by God with a superhuman intelligence, and has that original nature to which we are called back and from which we fell away. And the other view is that man comes up from the lower creatures and therefore, of course, you come to a philosophy of moral relativism because if we were once something else, some kind of ape-like creature, we're going to be something else, we're heading for Superman, which most evolutionists say means a collective humanity will become Superman. Or you even have religious ideas like Thierry de Chardin who says that the whole world is evolving into a higher state in which the world itself is like the bread which is being transmuted into the other world and then it all becomes Christ. Of course, that's like pantheism, like some frightful heresy which is exactly what Antichrist needs to come to reign. That the people will think they are gods while actually having this philosophy of animalistic philosophy. And having this very realistic view of the Holy Fathers, you see, actually Christ died on the cross. It's not some kind of image or allegory. And that gives us salvation, not some kind of figurative thing, but actual salvation, just like Adam tasted of a tree and by that lost paradise, an actual state of both physical and spiritual. 
<clears throat> yes? Well, it simply follows the, the worldly philosophy of the times. And it ends up in something, well, Teodor Shade ends up in something, some frightful heresy, actually, which is, yes, akin to Gnosticism also. Well, glory be to God. We've seen the first few chapters. Perhaps next year we could go into the next eight chapters, which are very interesting, because it tells about the whole early history of mankind, and Noah, and the Tower of Babel, and all these, if you interpret these as the fathers do, it becomes very meaningful in the life. Instead of all this business about cave dwellers, and there were cave dwellers, but they have a particular, they were degenerates, because the original mankind, even after the fall, they lived to be 900 years old. Obviously, mankind in the early days was quite different from mankind today. And the fathers comment upon that, and it must come also from the direct revelation of God, because there were no records in those early days. <laughs> Joy of sorrow, an intercessor of the offended, feeder of the hungry, consolation of the heart, of the soul, visitation of the sick, protection and intercessor of the infant, staff of old age, mother of God, Thou art immaculate, patiently pregnant, save It's so deep, I feel like drowning. Oh, sir, from, what's the, um, how does Christ been with that, the, uh, the final state where the, the saints were up there in the in, a, in the place where Adam was in the state that Adam was meant to achieve, and uh, Christ yeah, he's God. Okay, he's okay, he's worshipped by the saints, okay. but he doesn't possess any spiritual body like you said when he came down. Well, no, he still has his body. Yes, still possesses a spiritual body. Undoubtedly, we'll see the bodies. Then Andrew saw Christ in the throne. But he is the essence of God, and we commune with that essence of stewarding our individuality. Well, yes, God is everywhere. He's the light. But also, Christ will be there because he resurrected. Manifest in a spiritual body. Not just spiritual body, but there also. How it works in practice, we aren't worthy of knowing. He'll be walking about, and we'll be talking to him, or about the or something like that. It's like he walked about here with his disciples. Okay, that explains it. Mm -hmm. He is the essence of God, and, and uh, but he took flesh, okay. became like us, and there that flesh will be there. We have contact with God spiritually. But the saints, but also well, well, yeah, the saints do not, you know, are not their his essence, but they commune with his essence. Right? Yes, they're deified. They become participants of God. Participants. Okay. I kind of got confused because I was kind of thinking, trying to reconcile how. how you know, if the saints were equal, it sounded like they could have, could have been equal. I know there's a distinct, in fact, this whole teaching of saying Gregor Palamas, the energy, essence, and energies of God. Mm -hmm. God in his essence, we do not have any direct contact with, we see him in his energy. But he, the saints do have contact with the essence, but they are not well, one with through the, the energy stuff, because we can't, know, we can't think like God or think God's thoughts or think what he was doing before the world was or anything like that. We can only participate according as he allows us by his grace. Okay.